Jack Camp played on a lot of great football teams. Some won Super Bowls, some didn't. Some people think that one of the teams that did not win the Super Bowl might have been the best of all. From a guy who was on all those teams from the 1970s, and this is a debate we've had, discussion we've had, of the teams of the 70s, what was the best team? Most well-rounded, most accomplished. We pick up our interview now with Jack Ham. This is a discussion that Steelers Nation Unite likes to get involved with, and I remember having a long conversation with Dan Rooney about this. Of the four Super Bowl teams from your era, which was the best? I've always felt like it was 78 because they opened up the passing game rules in 77, and you mentioned the wide receivers, Bradshaw. Chuck was smart enough to take advantage of it. Now the rules changed, but Dan would always argue about the 76 team. Bradshaw goes down, Mike Kruzik steps in, two 1,000-yard rushers, and your defense, it's astounding really when you stop and think about it, um, allowed 28 points, uh, four shutouts in, in nine games. Uh, was that the best team? No, I, I, I would agree our third Super Bowl team would have been the best team. And because of the things you mentioned, you know, Chuck, yeah, you've you, you got to be vision. You have, you have to look ahead like in the, in the, you're playing chess here. And, you know, all of a sudden he realizes he's got some wide receivers with the rule changes. You know what? Maybe they change because of Mel Blunt and, at our, our corner. Well, we're going to take advantage of this as well. And so, and now Bradshaw is throwing the football because, you know, we're, we, we've got gifted guys out there. We can, you know, he still ran the ball with Franco, but now we're, we're much more explosive offense. And our defense was still good enough. The next year, we are, you know, we're riding on the rims defensively. We're getting older, and, and, and it was a problem in our last Super Bowl. But that, that year right there, combined offense, defense, I think that was our best team. I want to ask you about this because, uh, you know, football is so interdependent. Um, one of the first members in our very first Hall of Honor class was L.C. Greenwood. And how beneficial was it for you to play behind him? Or is there not that sort of tandem relationship between outside backer and a 4-3 and a defensive end? No, there, there, is, a, there is a relationship. And because I played behind him, so often, you know, if so many years, I probably, I probably played behind him probably about 10 years of my 12-year career. And Elsie was not a player who was going to bull rush somebody. He, he, you almost have to understand the talents of both players, the linebacker behind you and also the defensive end in front of you. And Elsie was very off the ball at first step and long arms where he would end up you know, getting quarterbacks up over top of an offensive lineman. I forget the, you may know, the offensive lineman from uh, Bob Brown. Bob Brown. Bob Brown, who Nebraska. I'm playing on. Yeah. He, his pads, uh, my God, I said to LC before the game started, I said, you know what, if I had to do this for three and a half hours, like you have to go up against him, and, and bet- looking at two of them side by side when, after one of the plays, Bob Brown was 320 pounds back then, and just a, in physical physical kind of offensive tackle. But LC was his quickness, he, he set him up and got him up the field off balance and you know, you know ducks underneath him up up the field and go underneath Bob Brown. 
Um, he was such a gifted player. And we, I understood how he was going to play certain plays. And again, we're not, he and I both weren't going to, you know, I'm not going to take on a tight end and, and just bury him at the line. I mean, you gotta, I get my hands on him. And that's what LC did as well. So it is funny. And I kid John Banizak. I said, you know, I had Joe Green over here. Elsie Greenwood in front of me, and yeah, I'm behind L.C. And then Elsie Greenwood gets hurt in the Denver game, and John Banizek comes in. <laughs> and then I said, John, I didn't have three running plays run at me the entire game. You're in here for one series, and this is like the Parkway West over here right now. They're, they're running plays. I said, will you make a play out here so they don't run up? I'm used to them running the other side, but... Uh, Elsie, was, I loved playing behind him, and, and, and there is a chemistry and a feel that you have between your defensive, not so much Joe, but for your defensive end in front of you, and that is a terrific, terrific guy and, and incredible player and never got the recognition he deserved because of all the other guys on that defense and who got uh, you know, all pro and, you know, Hall of Fame honors and whatever. But what a great, great player for us. And boy, could he run, you know, for a guy, oh, that, a guy yeah. that size and that length. You know, the, that's the thing where most often you think you have him blocked and his, his I don't know what his reach was, but boy, I, I saw him go over top of an offensive tackle and get the quarterback by the shirt or whatever and drag him down. And didn't mean the offensive lineman didn't realize that's close enough for LC because he can he actually get to you. So. Probably Dan Pastorini because he, he never he never <laughs> left through River Stadium on his feet, uh, not once. You know, and, and you know what? And Dan Pastorini, I, I played with him in the College All Star game. He was that's the luck of the draw. That's why I think for, for my career here in Pittsburgh. But Dan Pastorini was, is a tremendous athlete, great punter as well. He, we played in the College All Star game together. Very talented, strong arm. But if you get with the wrong team, which was Archie Manning on our team as well, and you go to the Saints. All of a sudden, your pro career is going to hell in a handbasket, and that's what happened to both of those guys. Speaking of LC, I mentioned that for a reason. Uh, all the guys who are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as obviously you are, um, have talked a lot about the institution of the Hall of Honor. Uh, you played you know, a lot of Hall of Fame guys in those teams in the 70s, obviously. Um, I think we're up to 11 now, something like that. But there were so many other guys, like the Mike Wagners, the J.T. Thomases, the Sam Davises, the Gordon Gravels, um, all those guys who eventually will be in the Hall of Honor. But a, a, a lot of your teammates felt really gratified and excited that there was a place for these guys because they deserve the honor because you don't win four Super Bowls without them. Oh, w w without a doubt. The, the guys you just mentioned – you know, you, you throw Randy Grossman in there. That's Rocky. the glue. The glue of your football team. I mean, sure, you're going to have certain great players on your team, and then you'll have great players. But, boy, I'll tell you, when you have guys, you know, Larry Brown, uh, you know, and, you know, now Donnie Shell is going into the Hall of Fame. You know, that's what made us a great football team. I mean, Glenn Edwards, no one realizes how much Glenn Edwards and Mike Wagner in that secondary, the communication that we had to have, whereby we would change defenses without, you know, it's audible from, from our defensive side of the ball. And you had to make sure, you know, on, by formation, especially when you play like the Cowboys in the Super Bowl, it's a check with me. And you got to be all on the same page. And smart guy like Mike Wagner in that secondary, and just held that, hold that, held that thing together defensively for us. All of those guys, you know, I start always with, you know, Larry Brown, who I actually played against in college. 
who just made himself into just a great football player, and we just put him out there at right tackle, and then Chuck Noll just forgets about him because, again, he had these long arms, and he was very athletic, and all of a sudden you have, you have a 12-, 13-year career where he's out there all the time. You know, almost people take it for granted because, you know, so many other guys are getting into the Hall of Fame and, and whatever, but those guys are just that, – that's what makes you a championship football team, the, the guys that you just mentioned. High caliber all. I'm glad to get Larry. Uh, in the hall of, there's so many other. John Kolb, um, you know, quietly went about his business and didn't make a lot of Pro Bowls, which was a travesty in and of itself. Yeah, and, and in the Super Bowl, we're blocking these these uh, Hall of Fame guys like you, Fred Dreyer and Tutal Jones and a Randy White and, yeah. and people like that. And our offensive line was just, again, probably throughout our career, probably the unsung hero of our, our team. Is people just. All of a sudden, just, they were just a solid offensive line that people took for granted and, and how well they played. Other than Webby, um, right. they didn't get that kind of, uh, kind of recognition. Uh, Jack, you mentioned your 12-year career. Um, was it a difficult decision for you to decide to retire? I know you were coming off a tough foot injury. Um, how did you know? Well, you're right. I played two years after. I got hurt. Earl Campbell... Uh, and I, I, I rue the day that we were in the same division because guys in the NFL, you know, I remember talking to Isaiah Robertson who played against him one time, and there's a highlight film of, of Campbell hitting Isaiah Robertson around the 10-yard line, and they're both in the end zone after the, after the collision with Campbell. Well, he plays them one time, and that, that's probably it for his career. There were two years in a row we played Houston three, three times, you know, being in our division, and then we played him in the... Uh, in the championship games uh, two years in a row. Uh, so I ended up getting in a pile and Campbell hit into it and I probably should have broke my foot. I ended up dislocating my foot which had to be pinned and whatever. Long story short, I, I never came back 100% and maybe again, I would already played eight or nine years, uh, but I never got back to 100%, played two years, but the, the, it was an easy decision. You know, tape doesn't lie, you look at it, you're not coming off blocks like you did before. You're engaging with somebody, a tight end or a running back, and you're not getting off of him. Uh, it was, I thought after that, my 12th year, I was fortunate I didn't get hurt. So it was an easy de- decision to uh, retire. Was it difficult, even though the evidence was there, a lot of players still can't accept that, uh, what about psychologically? I mean, this has been such a big part of your life for all these years. You know, going back to high school, was that part difficult to separate? No, not really. No, it. You know, I remember back when I was in college, Joe Paterno once told me. He said, you know, in, even in college, football is just a small part of your life. Your your education, your family, uh, and he always made football. You know, he said, your your football career is just like anybody else in college. It's an extracurricular activity. You happen to be playing at Beaver Stadium in front of a, a bunch of people. But don't think you're any better or any worse. And so I, you know, I, I love playing a game. I, I love that. But walking away from it was not, I, I didn't anguish over this. You know, I was in the coal business at that time and working in the off season, working a little bit even during the season. But you gotta, if you look at the tape and it's different and you, and you and like I said, you don't, it's hard to lie to yourself. And didn't want to hang on anyways. On, and, and that's like that. So it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty easy, easy decision. Was it the most difficult part, leaving the camaraderie of being around your teammates? Well, a lot of them were leaving then, but right. you know, new guys coming in. 
The biggest pro thing that bothered me the most, and I always tell my wife Joanne, that playing, you, you, you play that from training camp in Latrobe all the way through the regular season, you're trying to get to the playoffs and trying to get home field advantage. And, and the playoffs where it's so different than any other professional sport, it's one game, one time, either win it, you move on, you lose, you're out. It's not a best of seven. And the intensity of that, of those kind of games where sometimes players, sometimes you get too conservative in a game like that. Would you, do you play your normal game and, you know, be aggressive and taking a chance on a, on a, on a jump and a receiver? Uh, sometimes guys won't do that. I actually missed that part of it. That, you know, that, it's a, an excitement that you, you can't, it's hard to do, I can't duplicate that anywhere else and how you feel right before that game starts and during that game. And, and every play is, is even that much more important in a game like that. And I miss that. I miss that. And I miss those Super Bowls, which that's what you try to do each year to get to that Super Bowl. That's the thing I miss the most. And obviously, obviously the locker room. I mean, but uh, there is something about playoff NFL football that is just special. <clears throat> well, you've managed to stay close to the game uh, with a broadcasting career. Uh, your greatest accomplishment was probably unlearning all the bad habits I taught you <laughs> because you may not know that Jack's first foray into broadcasting, he was my partner on Steelers preseason games on Channel 4. Uh, you've managed to overcome that and have a successful Stan, broadcasting was, career nonetheless. That was, that was so much fun. Yeah, that, that really was so much fun. It, it did keep me a little connected to the, to the game that I, I'm just, uh, you know, after 12 years. And at that point, I'm, I'm still new a lot of the players out there. And it was on the defenses, it was not all that difficult. You could almost see what they were playing. And but also in the preseason, which you, you know, you were, you were really good about the fact of knowing every player out there. I didn't know all, every one of them, but uh, that was fun. And it kind of that kind of morphed into what I'm doing to Penn State now, doing the doing the color for them on the Penn State Network. Do you remember we were doing a game at Three River Stadium, and the big controversy was Chuck would not use the shotgun, and there was a rumor <laughs> that he was going to use it only in the exhibition game, and the first time they tried it. The center snapped the ball way over the quarterback's head, <laughs> yeah. and that put that controversy uh, to rest. Yeah, remember that, was, that? That ended up. That, that was the end of it. So yeah, there were, but there were some funny things. But I, I always, I always enjoyed it, and and it's it, just the part where you know analyzing a game. It, it, it's something that I, I really do enjoy. I probably do it sometimes when I'm at home watching a game, a Steeler game or whatever. And it's it's uh, it's something I really enjoy. And yeah, you're right about the fact that it does still ha have me connected. Although the only thing up at uh, at Penn State with there's linebackers up there are starting to call me Mr. Ham, and ah. that, that, that kind of bothers me. Uh, the gray <laughs> although, although young people, you stay around 18, 19, 20 year old kids all the time. I'll tell you, they keep you young. Yeah, um, the gray hair may have something to do with it. I, I get the same the same kind of thing. Uh, lastly, Jack, you know, you mentioned you know you were hoping maybe to go live your life somewhere else, growing up in Johnstown, see what happens in the rest of the country. Um, that sort of thing, but as you look back on it now, aside from just the success of the team, you can't eliminate that from the equation, but given how passionate people are about Steelers football, I mean, I know they are in other places, but to mimic one of the NFL highlight films about the Steelers, a cut above, 
the fan base around here, I think, and I've been to a lot of places and watched a lot of games, um, the Steeler fan base, Western Pennsylvania, because of all that football means to them, I think is a cut above. And I wonder if you feel that way, if you felt that way when you played, and now that you have lived and are living your life in Pittsburgh, if you feel that way. Oh, I, with, without a doubt, because I can remember my second year when all of a sudden we got to be pretty good. We're winning football games, and Chuck Knoll said we're introducing the defense. You know, he'd tell us in the locker room. We are in an old, old Three Rivers uh, locker room and tunnel, and I could hear the fans out there screaming defense before we even got anywhere near the field. And every player on the team back then had a fan club. We had a backup linebacker who had a fan club because that's how passionate. And I had mine was a, it was called Dorbashunka, which means good ham. And everybody, and the, 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 all of a sudden, that fan base just got absolutely crazy starting in 72, and it has continued now. I've come to certain uh, functions and I'm, uh, before the game here, and I'm meeting fans from, you know, from Hawaii and California. And you talk about Steeler Nation, and that is really true. But I think it started back then, and, and, and it has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I can always remember uh, Ed Podolak, who played for the Kansas City Chiefs. He said, you know what, it is so tough to come in here and try to win a football game because not just you guys but these fans as well and when an opponent tells you something like that off off the cuff it means that is much so much more but uh oh the fan base here is just it was outstanding and it has continued and it, it, it was always special to play here in pittsburgh it's like howard cosell once said when you come to pittsburgh you not only play the steelers you have to play the whole city <laughs> Well, that, you know, it, I, I, I could remember the, the playoff game against Oakland, and Bob Moore was a tight end, and I forget what happened the night before. And, oh, uh, yeah. And he, he got an altercation. I, think, I, I can't remember what happened. So I'm talk, It was right, outside right, the Hilton Hotel. Right. Right after, so the next day, uh, he, he said, you know, hey, what's, you know, I got in a, in a fight outside. My hands all bleeding. I said, you're lucky that's all you got. <laughs> 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 that says it all. <laughs> Mr. Ham, it was a real pleasure. Uh, Stan, it's great. I good, enjoyed good it. Good seeing you. Thank Take you. care. And I have to tell you, <clears throat> that ended the interview, and Jack and I sat there and just talked for another 45 minutes <laughs> just about things, um, about sports and about life in general. Uh, what a quality person uh, he is. He mentions his wife, Joanne. She's wonderful. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I've retweeted that. I've tweeted it, and then Steelers Nation Unite tweeted it out. So if you missed that or want to hear it again or tell somebody else about it, it's up on our Twitter account at Stan Love the Show. Well, if you've been with us every day, you know that for the past month and a half, every Tuesday at 1 o'clock, we've been doing interviews with some of the Steelers' all-time greats, Hall of Fame guys, Hall of Honor guys, and we'll continue this through next week. Our guest today is a guy that I got to know really well because we worked together when I was doing the play-by-play on Steelers preseason games on Channel 4. I was the one who suggested that we look and ask Jack Ham if he'd like to be the color announcer. And he agreed, and we did that for five seasons together. And Jack has continued with a very successful post-playing career 
being an analyst. Now, did NFL games for a long time, national radio, and has been doing Penn State for, boy, I think coming up on 20 years now. In any event, I had a chance to sit down with Jack a couple of weeks ago. And it's interesting, we all like to be pro athletes, or when we were kids maybe we did, but how special would it have been to do that for your hometown team? Well, let's remember that Jack grew up just up the road in Johnstown, PA. So when he got drafted by the Steelers, was that something extra special for him? Jack, a lot of kids dream about playing pro football. And if you can actually further refine that, an opportunity to play for their hometown team would be off the charts. And I'm wondering, as a kid growing up in Johnstown, were you a Steeler fan? <laughs> Actually, uh, my, my dad was a Steeler fan, but I, I was not. Uh, I grew up at the time when the, you know, the AFL and NFL both had team uh, leagues. And, boy, the AFL was wide open, and, you know, the San Diego Chargers and all the, the teams that threw the football a lot. And I watched my father go through such anguish watching the Steelers <laughs> and who, who would play tough. They'd be in the game in the third quarter and fourth quarter. Somehow, some way, they would lose the game, and, and he'd be frustrated for the entire week. So I, I grew up being an you know, American Football League fan for the most part and uh, kind of identify with those teams. Makes you wonder if the Steelers had been better in those years, if that would have made a difference. Yeah, I, I think it would have been. I, I, you know, it, it, uh, it, they just had that reputation back then, and it just hung with everybody in you know, Johnstown's about an hour and a half away from here, and they were, we were all, everybody there was diehard Steeler fans, and, uh, and my father would come to the games at time to time, but uh, it was just very frustrating, and I, I, I saw him just lament after <laughs> another Steeler <laughs> lost, and, and, and maybe that, somehow, someway, that, that affected me, I guess. Well, Johnstown is certainly still a bastion of Steeler fans. I think most people are aware of the story about how you got your scholarship to Penn State. Right. Um, and I'm wondering, as you entered college to play football, had you dreamed about playing pro football, or was that sort of an after the fact, after you got deeper into your college career? It got actually deeper in my college career. Is When I came to Penn State, I wasn't sure I was good enough to play. I got the scholarship, and it was the last scholarship that year. And all of a sudden, after, after my freshman year, at that time, freshmen couldn't play on the varsity, so you were kind of like can, cannon fodder for the varsity. And then finally, spring practice is when you go up and, and just really see how good you really are. And that is when I think they, we had a turnaround. Joe Paterno uh, put me on the first-team defense, and we had an outstanding defense. We had guys like Mike Reed, who was a number one draft pick for the Bengals uh, two years ahead of me, Steve Smear, John Ebersol. Danny Oncotts, we had a, a terrific defense and we played well for those three years. So all of a sudden I, got, I was first team defense as my, in my freshman spring practice and that was a turning point for me. It was a, it was a confidence builder for me. I actually thought that you know, Joe Paterno and my coaches felt they had more confidence in me than I had myself at that point. And this kind of really jump-started me and, and wasn't thinking about pro football at the point, that point, just trying to have a really good college career. When you did get drafted by the Steelers, did you go, oh, no, I wanted to play for the Houston Oilers or the, Sandy, or the New York Jets or somebody uh, in the AFL? Well, the merger, it just started, but the yeah. original AFL teams. Well, it, the problem I had, I, you know, being Johnstown to Penn State, I was a little naive about talking to some of the pro teams because the New York Giants called me the night before and said they were going to draft me in, in the first round. 
and the San Diego Chargers called me and said they were going to draft me in the first round, and I believed that. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, the draft was a whole lot different uh, back then than it is now, so I realized we ran through the first round, uh, and I was not picked, and, and I was kind of disappointed in that, and then finally when Pittsburgh drafted me, you know, I, I really felt, you know, I, being from this area, I thought pro football will give me the opportunity to live somewhere else for a period of time, you know, wherever the case may be. I thought San Diego or New York or whatever, and, uh, you know, and still have my roots back here. And I really didn't want to be, dra- again, be drafted here in Pittsburgh. And I was at a, I was making a few bucks at a car dealership the day of the draft in Johnson. I, I still go by that area to this day. And that's when, I, when uh, Dan Rooney called me and, and said they drafted me in the second round. Uh, I'm wondering, you had a unique perspective, um, maybe a kid coming out of Nebraska or Southern California you know, knew of the Pittsburgh Steelers but didn't know the history. Um, and they were certainly a long way away from becoming what they became in the 70s. And I'm wondering if that oh no moment, because you talk about your dad and agonizing and you know, they, they lost a lot, I mean, if that weighed heavily on your mind. Well, it's not not as much. I think at that point, like like I said, I was first of all, I was very disappointed I wasn't in the first round. I mean, it was a, I thought I was good enough, and uh, and like I said, it, you know, I believe what general managers tell you the night before a draft or whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, I just I kind of like I said, I identify with the AFL. I identify with those teams with you had you know where you have to have a lot of speed, both on offense and defense. And I thought. I would probably be more adapt to play in, in with those kind of teams, and uh, which I thought San Diego would be perfect. But uh, you know, like I said, it, it, it couldn't have turned out any better for me in being drafted here. But you're right; those first, you know, I, I knew they were not a very good football team. In my rookie year, I saw evidence of that, and uh, and all of a sudden, Chuck Noll turns the whole thing around. Which leads me to ask: um, You played for one of the most iconic coaches at any level in any sport, and I'm wondering what your first impressions of Chuck Knoll were, that very first training camp. Well, I had a unique experience with Chuck because not only was he the head coach, but he was also the linebacker coach. And I thought my first practice, because Andy Russell had been there for a period of time, and Chuck is trying to teach a drill whereby we take away the wide receiver on an in route and being able to, and we call it slooping, you're backpedaling to the outside. And Andy and Chuck got into an argument about, you know, Andy's saying, you know what, it's fine on paper, but this is not practical on the field. We just cannot make that kind of a, a read that quickly to make this, this, drill, this drill work. I thought to myself, okay, that number 34, Andy Russell, should be about gone by the time the, you know, the, next <laughs> practice, the next practice comes out because this is the head coach, and he's arguing with him out there. And Andy was right. Andy was absolutely right about it. And that was my first practice out there. And Chuck was such detailed on reading the depth of the guard pulling out, whether he's flat or he's pulling out for a sweep, being able to identify that. And we would go over those drills with him. I mean, he was, he was so intense about the correct read and if you if you read it correctly for an outside linebacker that means you're taking on a guard much closer in where he can't get out on you and can't get turned up on you and we did those drills every day but 
you know, almost every other practice, there would be all a question or a dialogue between Andy Russell and, and Chuck Knoll. And, and uh, it went on until finally Chuck was not, and Charlie Sumner ended up being our linebacker coach. And I think maybe Chuck was just tired of arguing with Andy <laughs> Russell for all those practices. But uh, so I had a unique situation when your head coach is also your, your position coach. You probably weren't aware of the vibe in the locker room uh, until you got there. But did you begin to sense that something was happening here? In other words, you hadn't been part of the past, um, but did you get a sense that with Chuck in charge and some of the other players that were already there with many more parts to be added, that something was building here? Uh, no, <laughs> because in my second year, we had gone five and nine uh, my, my rookie year, and uh, the only thing that was different was not only myself off this, my draft. We, we look at the 74 draft with, with Hall of Fame guys, uh, first four picks, but we had about 10 or 11 guys off my, my draft year. Uh, Frank Lewis was our number one draft pick that year. Mike Wagner came in, Ernie Holmes. I mean, we had Glenn Edwards. We had a lot of guys who not only made the team my rookie year, but got a lot of playing time. They were, they were not just backup people. They were getting a lot of playing time. And then that second year, we go from, you know, five and nine to, to I think, 12 and three, 12, uh, 11 and three or so in my second year. And I think at the end of my first year, a, a little bit where I could see that, but it really came together that second year. What, and there were so many additions. You mentioned the 74 class. Um, a lot of people, uh, including Joe Green, thought that once Franco arrived, that that was, if you will, the missing piece. Not the only one, but a major component to turn things around. Did you get that sense as well? I did. Uh, I, I, I did. With, uh, when Franco got there, and, and there were rumblings of Franco, because I know Chuck and the draft people here in Pittsburgh, I, Robert Newhouse was... They're going back and forth, and, and uh, obviously we made, obviously came up with the right decision here. But there was also the fact we had a Penn State running back, Bob Campbell, who was here earlier and was about a, a third-round pick, I think, and it was a bust. And so a lot of players had question marks about a Penn State running back coming over here, especially in the first round. And I always could remember his rookie year. We're in Atlanta for a preseason game. And it was one of those hot, muggy August days over there. And Franco busted the play for about 83 yards for a touchdown. And from then on out, we didn't hear one question mark, anybody questioning uh, Franco Harris and his ability to play. And so I agree with Joe. I mean, that was, that was really the, the linchpin, I think, for our football team when we got Franco. You know, it's funny. Larry Brown mentioned that exact play. Oh, yeah. When geez. everybody turned their head and said, oh, because – he wasn't terribly diligent in practice, I, I gather. <laughs> oh, you're really being kind okay. about that. He wasn't a good practice player at Penn State, and he wasn't a good practice player here at, in Pittsburgh. But especially, you know, you, you don't have scout teams like you do in college, so sometimes you've got to run plays. You know, our, our number one offense has to run plays to give us a look for whatever team we're playing that week. And, you know, we're playing, you know, it's a guy, O.J. Simpson, and Franco, we're playing Buffalo, and Franco is jogging out here running, running a sweep. Now, you know O.J. Simpson is running it a whole lot harder than that, so he never gave us a good look. So he, he had that reputation of being not too much of a practice guy. We talked about 
building and the confidence of a team. Now the 74 Hall of Famers come into play. Uh, did it take winning the first Super Bowl to realize how great you were? Or was that just merely proof of something that you already knew? I think it was uh, proof of something uh, that, that I, I kind of knew. Uh, number one, like I said about our draft, we were a good football team, 72, obviously, we get, and then we get Franco. And we're winning now. We're in playoffs, and we're, you know, we, get, uh, we're, uh, we know we're a pretty good football team. 74 just put us, from there, just put us right over the top. Now, all of a sudden, all the pieces you need to be a quality football team. But I got a, a sense of how good a football team we were because we were able to win that thing back-to-back twice. And you could have said uh, our first Super Bowl, we snuck up on people. We played the Raiders after they played Miami in the playoff game uh, when we beat them out in Oakland. And, uh, and so there were still question marks about, by other people, not us, about how good we were. But to come back and win that thing again the following year. That is probably the thing that I look at our football team and admire the most because there's not, as Chuck Knoll told us the first day of training camp, which was a day where Route 30, because it was our first day back after winning a Super Bowl, Route 30 all the way to, I think, to Greensburg. I mean, there were people trying to get in there for that first day. And I can remember Chuck Knoll said, you know what, take your Super Bowl rings off your finger, put them up on a shelf, because there's nothing you did last year going to win you a football game this year. He said, because every team is going to star on their, on their schedule when they play Pittsburgh. And like I said, we, and he said you can handle that. It would be a great challenge for you. Or you can be a one-time Super Bowl winner and fall off the map. And I can always remember him giving that speech. And somehow Chuck had the, had the feel of our football team, and, and, and we got it. You never arrived. Was, was one of his favorite exa- Exactly right. <clears throat> exactly right. And he, t- he taught, he would teach at training camp a guy that he would know he'd be cutting in about two or three days and still go over technique with him after, I remember a tight end, I can't remember the guy's name. And he just loved teaching. He, he, was, a, he was more than a football uh, coach because I, I remember my wife's a biochemistry master's degree and she had a, me- a meeting or a, a conversation with him, and she walked away and came back to me, and she said, you know what, he's more than a football coach. <laughs> and, and that's so true about Chuck. Continuing on talking about Chuck, I mean, there were really some distinctive personalities on that team. Uh, it ran the spectrum, it ran the gamut, um, but there were some real characters, some real personalities. And I'm wondering, one of Chuck's great skills, not only teaching football, but he somehow, you mentioned, uh, he knew how to deal w- with your team. He understood the psychology of it. I mean, was that evident to you as a player? Is it more evident to you now than it was then? No, I think it was evident as a, as a player. And, and he is kind of my kind of coach as well. I mean, Chuck would have been uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon. He head of a, a corporation or whatever. Because, I mean, we just felt, and, and Stan, you, I think you appreciate this, we felt our guy, our coach, is smarter than that guy across the field, and I don't care if Chuck made a mistake, we we might have we would fix it, and we make it ha- make it right, and but we had such confidence in him, that I always said people I've talked to, yeah, we had the Bradshaws and Lamberts and Joe Greens and Francos and everybody, and that's the knock on Chuck. We had all these great players, 
we don't win championships. We don't win four championships unless we have Chuck Noll. Do you believe, going back to the first back-to-back, that you would have been the first and only team to win three in a row if not for the injuries to Franco and Rocky in Baltimore before you played Oakland? Yeah, I, I, I think defensively that might have been our, our best football team because, and our offense was really coming on. We were just a running football team before that and play action and, and Bradshaw would throw it you know, 17, 18 times a game at, at most. Uh, but our defense right there was about as good as we, we were playing. That, that was a peak for us, and the offense was coming on. So, you know, injuries are part of it, and, and you know, we're not going to – no excuses. But, boy, I could still see us right now. You know, you always look back on a game like that because we had wideouts. You know, we had gifted wideouts. You know, no, nobody was going three wide or four wide out there right now, but it had been something because we had such talent at the wide receiver position – we had nothing at the running running back, so we, which was our focal point. But uh, yeah, that one. If one thing that sticks in my crawl is that uh, the Raiders beating us out there in, in that game. Reduce just one running back. It, it happened, as they say. You know, necessity's a mother of invention. But Chuck and the offensive staff, and he was the offensive coordinator. People should know that too. In addition to being the quarterback coach back in those years. Um, in essence, invented the double tight end offense because you only had the one running back in Reggie Harrison. That was the first time we'd really seen a double tight end. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You couldn't. Now you have a, more of a balanced offense. Your, your tendencies normally, most teams back then were right-handed for the most part when they were running the football. Now you're, you know, I think it's more of a problem for your safety when you have two tight ends. Well, even today we're – these guys are gifted athletes as well, and they catch the ball so well. So, uh, yeah, it, it, that was one thing. But, you know, the tight, the, the tight end position, you know, for us was almost like an afterthought. We had Larry Brown, you know, who was, he was, a, he was a tight end converted to an offensive lineman. Uh, and but now, he, was a, now, he was a third tackle, oh, and exactly, that's was a tight yeah, end. Exactly. And, and, uh, and I see today now where they're really using tight ends at a point where you see the Super Bowl this year with two probably the most gifted tight ends out there in the National Football League. And so, yeah, the two tight end, it, it puts the pressure on a defense because you are not sure where that running game, because you're ba- such, such, such balance, but you better have two tight ends who can block as well. You're not just, you know, I'm, I'm a tight end, but I want to catch, you know, 70 balls. You need somebody that's got the mentality that wants to really block. Yeah, the Steelers, <laughs> think about that uh, for the 2020 season. Uh, our interview with Jack Hamm will continue. Um, hope you're enjoying it. Um, when we pick it up after this next break, Jack will talk more about the Super Bowl years, but also uh, <clears throat> about Hall of Fame, uh, also about some of his, uh, shall we say, less famous teammates, uh, and about his careers as a broadcaster. We will continue. By the way, our guest next week will be Rocky Blyer. Very entertaining. I think you'll enjoy that as well. We'll continue with our Jack Cam interview. We continue after this on Saverin on Sports on ESPN Pittsburgh. 